Section 15 of The Rover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Cairns, Naperville, Illinois. The Rover by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 15. Part 1. Catherine, going downstairs, found Peril still at the well. He seemed to be looking into it with extreme interest. Your coffee is ready, Peril, she shouted at him from the doorway. He turned very sharply like a man surprised and came along smiling. That's pleasant news, Mademoiselle Catherine, he said. You are down early. Yes, she admitted. But you too, Peril. Is Michel about? Let him come and have some coffee too. Michel's at the tartan. Perhaps you don't know that she is going to make a little voyage. He drank a mouthful of coffee and took a bite out of a slice of bread. He was hungry. He had been up all night and had even had a conversation with Citizen Savola. He had also done some work with Michel after daylight. However, there had not been much to do because the tartan was always kept ready for the sea. After having locked up again Citizen Savola, who was extremely concerned as to what was going to happen to him, but was left in a state of uncertainty, he had come up to the farm, had gone upstairs where he was busy with various things for a time, and then had stolen down very cautiously to the well, where Catherine, whom he had not expected downstairs so early, had seen him before she went into Lieutenant Real's room. While he enjoyed his coffee, he listened without any signs of surprise to Catherine's comments on the disappearance of Sivola. She had looked into his den. He had not slept on his pallet last night. Of that she was certain, and he was nowhere to be seen, not even in the most distant field from the points of vantage around the farm. It was inconceivable that he should have slipped away to Madraga, where he disliked to go, or to the village where he was afraid to go. Perrault remarked that, Whatever happened to him, he was no great loss. But Catherine was not to be soothed. It frightens a body, she said. He may be hiding somewhere to jump on one treacherously. You know what I mean, Perrault? Well, the lieutenant will have nothing to fear as he's going away. As to myself, Sivola and I are good friends. I had a long talk with him quite recently. You two women can manage him perfectly, and then, who knows, perhaps he has gone away for good. Catherine stared at him. If such a word as stare can be applied to a profound, contemplative gaze. The lieutenant has nothing to fear from him, she repeated cautiously. No, he is going away. Didn't you know it? The old woman continued to look at him profoundly. Yes, he is on service. For another minute or so, Catherine continued silent in her contemplative attitude. Then her hesitation came to an end. She could not resist the desire to inform Parole of the events of the night. As she went on, Parole forgot the half-full bowl of cereal and his half-eaten piece of bread. Catherine's voice flowed with austerity. She stood there, imposing and solemn like a peasant priestess. The relation of what had been to her a soul-shaking experience did not take much time, and she finished with the words, The lieutenant is an honest man. And after a pause she insisted further, There is no denying it. He has acted like an honest man. For a moment longer, Perrault continued to look at the coffee in the bowl. Then, without warning, got up with such violence that the chair behind him was thrown back upon the flagstones. Where is he, that honest man? 
he shouted suddenly in stentorian tones which not only caused catherine to raise her hands but frightened himself and he dropped at once to a mere forcible utterance where is that man let me see him even catherine's hieratic composure was disturbed why she said looking really disconcerted he will be down here directly this bowl of coffee is for him perrault made as if to leave the kitchen but catherine stopped him for god's sake monsieur perrault she said half in entreaty and half in command don't wake up the child let her sleep oh let her sleep don't wake her up god only knows how long it is since she has slept properly i could not tell you i daren't think of it she was shocked by hearing perrault declare all this is confounded nonsense but he sat down again seemed to catch sight of the coffee bowl and emptied what was left in it down his throat i don't want her on my hands more crazy than she has been before said catherine in a sort of exasperation but in a very low tone this phrase in its selfish form expressed a real and profound compassion for her niece she dreaded the moment when that fatal arlette would wake up and the dreadful complications of life which her slumbers had suspended would have to be picked up again parole fidgeted on his seat and so he told you he was going he actually did tell you that he asked he promised to go before the child wakes up at once but sacre nom d'un chien there is never any wind before eleven o'clock perrault exclaimed in a tone of profound annoyance yet trying to moderate his voice while catherine indulgent to his changing moods only compressed her lips and nodded at him soothingly it is impossible to work with people like that he mumbled do you know monsieur perrault that she has been to see the priest catherine was heard suddenly towering above her end of the table the two women had had a talk before arlette had been induced by her aunt to lie down perrault gave a start what priest now look here catherine he went on with repressed ferocity do you imagine that all this interests me in the least i can think of nothing but that niece of mine we two have nobody but each other in the world she went on reproducing the very phrase arlette had used to rail she seemed to be thinking out loud but noticed that perrault was listening with attention he wanted to shut her up from everybody and the old woman clasped her meagre hands with a sudden gesture i suppose there are still some convents about the world you and the patron are mad together declared perrault all this only shows what an ass the cure is i don't know much about these things though i have seen some nuns in my time and some very queer ones too but it seems to me that they don't take crazy people into convents don't you be afraid i tell you that he stopped because the inner door of the kitchen came open and lieutenant Rael stepped in his sword hung on his forearm by the belt his hat was on his head he dropped his little valise on the floor and sat down in the nearest chair to put on his shoes which he had brought down in his other hand then he came up to the table perrault who had kept his eyes on him thought here is one who looks like a moth scorched in the fire Rael's eyes were sunk his cheeks seemed hollowed and the whole face had an arid and dry aspect well you are in a fine state for the work of deceiving the enemy 
Parole observed. Why, to look at you, nobody would believe a word you said. You are not going to be ill, I hope. You are on service. You haven't got the right to be ill. I say, Mademoiselle Catherine produced the bottle. You know, my private bottle? He snatched it from Catherine's hand, poured some brandy into the lieutenant's coffee, pushed the bowl towards him and waited. Nom de nom, he said forcibly. Don't you know what this is for? It's for you to drink. Rael obeyed with a strange automatic docility. And now, said Perrault, getting up, I will go to my room and shave. This is a great day, the day we are going to see the lieutenant off. Till then, Rael had not uttered a word, but directly the door closed behind Perrault. He raised his head. Catherine, his voice was like a rustle in his throat. She was looking at him steadily, and he continued, Listen, when she finds I am gone, you tell her I will return soon. Tomorrow, always tomorrow. Yes, my good monsieur, said Catherine in an unmoved voice, but clasping her hands convulsively. There is nothing else I would dare tell her. She will believe you, whispered Rael wildly. Yes, she will believe me, repeated Catherine in a mournful tone. Rael got up, put the sword belt over his head, picked up the valise. There was a little flush on his cheeks. Adieu, he said to the silent old woman. She made no answer, but as he turned away, she raised her hand a little, hesitated, and let it fall again. It seemed to her that the women of Escampabar had been singled out for divine wrath. Her niece appeared to her like the scapegoat charged with all the murders and blasphemies of the revolution. She herself, too, had been cast out from the grace of God, but that had been a long time ago. She had made her peace with heaven since. Again, she raised her hand and this time made in the air the sign of the cross at the back of Lieutenant Rael. Meanwhile, upstairs, Parole, scraping his big flat cheek with an English razor blade at the window, saw Lieutenant Riel on the path to the shore, and high above there, commanding a vast view of the sea and land, he shrugged his shoulders impatiently, with no visible provocation. One could not trust those epaulette-wearers. They would cram a fellow's head with notions either for their own sake or for the sake of the service— Still, he was too old a bird to be caught with chaff, and besides, that long-legged, stiff beggar going down the path, with all his officer's airs, was honest enough. At any rate, he knew a seaman when he saw one. Though he was as cold-blooded as a fish, Perrault had a smile, which was a little awry. Cleaning the razor blade, one of a set of twelve in a case. He had a vision of a brilliantly hazy ocean, and an English Indiaman, with her yards braced all ways, her canvas blowing loose above her blood-stained decks, overrun by a lot of privateersmen, and with the island of Ceylon swelling like a thin blue cloud on the far horizon, he had always wished to own a set of English blades, and there he had got it, fell over it, as it were, lying on the floor of a cabin, which had been already ransacked. For good steel, it was good steel, he thought, looked at the blade fixedly, and there it was, nearly worn out, the others too, that steel, and here he was, holding the case in his hand as though he had just picked it up from the floor, same case, same man, and the steel, worn out. He shut the case brusquely, 
flung it into his sea chest, which was standing open, and slammed the lid down. The feeling which was in his breast and had been known to more articulate men than himself was that life was a dream less substantial than the vision of Ceylon lying like a cloud on the sea. Dream left astern, dream straight ahead. This disenchanted philosophy took the shape of fear swearing. Sacre nom de nom de nom, tenere de bon dieu. While tying his neckcloth, he handled it with fury as though he meant to strangle himself with it. He rammed a soft cap onto his venerable locks, recklessly seized his cudgel, but before leaving the room, walked up to the window giving on the east. He could not see the petite pass on account of the lookout hill, but to the left a great portion of the Yuri's roadstead lay spread out before him, pale gray in the morning light, with the land about Cape Blanc swelling in the distance with all its details blurred as yet, and only one conspicuous object to his sight, something that might have been a lighthouse by its shape, but which Parole knew very well was the English corvette already under way, and with all her canvas set, this sight pleased Perrault, mainly because he had expected it. The Englishman was doing exactly what he had expected he would do, and Perrault looked towards the English cruiser with a smile of malicious triumph, as if he were confronting her captain. For some reason or other he imagined Captain Vincent as long-faced, with yellow teeth and a wig, whereas that officer wore his own hair and had a set of teeth which would have done honor to a London bell and was really the hidden cause of captain vincent appearing so often wreathed in smiles that ship at this great distance and steering in his direction held parole at the window long enough for the increasing light of the morning to burst into sunshine coloring and filling in the flat outline of the land with tints of wood and rock and field with clear dots of buildings enlivening the view the sun threw a sort of halo around the ship. Recollecting himself, Parole left the room and shut the door quietly. Quietly, too, he descended the stairs from his garret. On the landing, he underwent a short inward struggle, at the end of which he approached the door of Catherine's room and, opening it a little, put his head in. Across the whole width of it, he saw Arlette fast asleep. Her aunt had thrown a light coverlet over her. Her low shoes stood at the foot of the bed. Her black hair lay loose on the pillow, and Parole's gaze became arrested by the long eyelashes on her pale cheek. Suddenly, he fancied she moved, and he withdrew his head sharply, pulling the door to. He listened for a moment as if tempted to open it again, but judging it too risky, continued his way downstairs. At his reappearance in the kitchen, Catherine turned sharply. She was dressed for the day, with a big white cap on her head, a black bodice and a brown skirt, with ample folds. She had a pair of varnished sabots on her feet, over her shoes. No signs of Sivola, she said, advancing towards Perrault, and Michelle, too, has not been here yet. Perrault thought that if she had been only shorter what with her black eyes and slightly curved nose she would have looked like a witch but witches can read people's thoughts and he looked openly at catherine with the pleasant conviction that she could not read his thoughts 
he said. I took good care not to make any noise upstairs, Mademoiselle Catherine. When I am gone, the house will be empty and quiet enough. She had a curious expression. She struck Pearl suddenly as if she were lost in that kitchen in which she had reigned for many years. He continued, You will be alone all the morning. She seemed to be listening to some distant sound, and after Peril had added, Everything is all right now, she nodded, and after a moment said in a manner that for her was unexpectedly impulsive, Monsieur Peril, I am tired of life. He shrugged his shoulders and with somewhat sinister jocosity remarked, I will tell you what it is. You ought to have been married. She turned her back to him abruptly. No offense, Perrault excused himself in a tone of gloom rather than apology. It is no use to attach any importance to things. What is this life? <laughs> Nobody can remember one-tenth of it. Here I am, and you know, I would bet that if one of my old-time chums came along and saw me like this, here with you, I mean, one of those chums that stand up for a fellow in a scrimmage and look after him should he be hurt well i bet he repeated he wouldn't know me he wouldn't say to himself perhaps hello here's a comfortable married couple he paused catherine with her back to him and calling him not monsieur but parole to court remarked not exactly with displeasure but rather with an ominous accent that this was no time for idle talk parole however continued though his tone was very far from being that of idle talk. But you see, Mademoiselle Catherine, you were not like the others. You allowed yourself to be struck all of a heap, and at the same time you were too hard on yourself. Her long, thin frame bent low to work the bellows under the enormous overmantle she assented. Perhaps we as Campabar women were always hard on ourselves. That's what I say. If you had had things happen to you which happened to me, but you men, you are different. It doesn't matter what you do. You have got your own strength. You need not be hard on yourselves. You go from one thing to another thoughtlessly. He remained looking at her searchingly, with something like a hint of a smile on his shaven lips. But she turned away to the sink, where one of the women, working about the farm, had deposited a great pile of vegetables. She started on them with a broken-bladed knife, preserving her sibylline air even in that homely occupation. It will be a good soup, I see, at noon today, said the rover suddenly. He turned on his heels and went out through the sow. The whole world lay open to him, or, at any rate, the whole of the Mediterranean. Viewed down the ravine between the two hills, the bell of the farm's milch cow, which had a talent for keeping herself invisible, reached him from the right. But, he could not see as much as the tips of her horns, though he looked for them. He stepped out sturdily. He had not gone twenty yards down the ravine when another sound made him stand still as if changed into a stone. It was a faint noise resembling very much the hollow rumble an empty farm cart would make on a stony road. But Perrault looked up at the sky, and though... It was perfectly clear. He did not seem pleased with its aspect. He had a hill on each side of him, and the placid cove below his feet. He muttered, mm, Thunder at sunrise! It must be in the west. It only wanted that. 
He feared it would first kill the little breeze there was and then knock the weather up altogether. For a moment all his faculties seemed paralyzed by that faint sound. On that sea ruled by the gods of Olympus, he might have been a pagan mariner subject to Jupiter's caprices. But like a defiant pagan, he shook his fist vaguely at space, which answered him by a short and threatening mutter. Then he swung on his way till he caught sight of the two mastheads of the tartan. When he stopped to listen, no sound of any sort reached him from there, and he went on his way thinking, Go from one thing to another thoughtlessly. Indeed, that's all old Catherine knows about it. He had so many things to think of that he did not know which to lay hold of first. He just let them lie jumbled up in his head. His feelings, too, were in a state of confusion, and vaguely he felt that his conduct was at the mercy of an internal conflict. The consciousness of that fact accounted perhaps for his sardonic attitude towards himself and outwardly towards those whom he perceived on board the tartan and especially towards the lieutenant whom he saw sitting on the deck leaning against the head of the rudder characteristically aloof from the two other persons on board michel also characteristically was standing on top of the little cabin scuttle obviously looking out for his mitt citizen Sivola, sitting on the deck seemed at first sight to be at liberty but as a matter of fact he was not he was loosely tied up to a stanchion by three turns of the main sheet with the knot in such a position that he could not get at it without attracting attention and that situation seemed also somewhat characteristic of citizen Sivola, with its air of half liberty half suspicion and as it were contemptuous restraint the sans-culotte whose late experiences had nearly unsettled his reason first by their utter incomprehensibility and afterwards by the enigmatical attitude of parole had dropped his head and folded his arms on his breast and that attitude was dubious too it might have been resignation or it might have been profound sleep the rover addressed himself first to the lieutenant le moment approche said parole with a queer twitch at the corner of his lip while under his soft woolen cap his venerable locks stirred in the breath of a suddenly warm air the great moment eh he leaned over the big tiller and seemed to be hovering above the lieutenant's shoulder what's this infernal company murmured the latter without even looking at parole oh old friends quoi said parole in a homely tone we will keep that little affair amongst ourselves the fewer the men the greater the glory catherine is getting the vegetables ready for the noonday soup and the englishman is coming down towards the pass where he will arrive about noon too ready to have his eye put out you know lieutenant that will be your job you may depend on me for sending you off when the moment comes for what it is to you you have no friends you have not even a petite ami as to expecting an old rover like me oh no lieutenant of course liberty is sweet but what do you know of it you epaulette wearers moreover i am no good for quarter-deck talks and all that politeness i wish parole you would not talk so much said lieutenant Rael, turning his head slightly he was struck by the strange expression of the old rover's face and i don't see what the actual moment matters i am going to look for the fleet all you have to do is to hoist the sails for me and then scramble ashore very simple 
observed Perrault through his teeth, and then began to sing. Que leur chapeau sont bien lads goddam. Mangez les anglais, ils ont un si bon caractère. But interrupted himself suddenly to hail Siviola. Hey, Citoyen, and then remarked confidently to Raël, he isn't asleep, you know, but he isn't like the English. He has a sacré mauvais caractère. He got into his head, continued Parole in a loud and innocent tone, that you locked him up in this cabin last night. Did you notice the venomous glance he gave you just now? But Lieutenant Riel and the innocent Michel appeared surprised at his boisterousness. But all the time Parole was thinking, I wish to goodness I knew how that thunderstorm is getting on and what course it is shaping. I can't find that out unless I go up to the farm and get a view to the westward. It may be as far as the Rhone Valley. No doubt it is, and I will come out of it too. Curses on it. One won't be able to reckon on half an hour of steady wind from any quarter. He directed a look of ironic gaiety at all the faces in turn. Michel met it with a faithful dog gaze and innocently open mouth. Sivola kept his chin buried on his chest. Lieutenant Rael was insensible to outward impressions, and his absent stare made nothing of parole. The rover himself presently fell into thought. The last stir of air died out in the little basin, and the sun-clearing porcarolles inundated it with a sudden light, in which Michel blinked like an owl. It's hot early, he announced aloud, but only because he had formed the habit of talking to himself. He would not have presumed to offer an opinion unless asked by parole. His voice, having recalled parole to himself, he proposed to masthead the yards and even asked Lieutenant Riel to help in that operation, which was accomplished in silence, except for the faint squeaking of the blocks. The sails, however, were kept hauled up in the gear. Like this, said Parole, you have only to let go the ropes and you will be under canvas at once. Without answering, Raël returned to his position by the rudder head. He was saying to himself, I am sneaking off. No, there is honor, duty, and of course I will return. But when? They will forget all about me and I shall never be exchanged. This war may last for years. And illogically, he wished he could have had a god to whom he could pray for relief in his anguish. She will be in despair, he thought, writhing inwardly at the mental picture of a distracted Arlette. Life, however, had embittered his spirit early, and he said to himself, But in a month's time, will she even give me a thought? Instantly he felt remorseful, with a remorse strong enough to lift him to his feet as if he were morally obliged to go up again and confess to Arlette this sacrilegious cynicism of thought. I am mad, he muttered, perching himself on the low rail. His lapse from faith plunged him into such a depth of unhappiness that he felt all his strength of will go out of him. He sat there apathetic and suffering. He meditated dully. Young men have been known to die suddenly. Why should not I? I am, as a matter of fact, at the end of my endurance. I am half dead already, yes, but what is left of that life does not belong to me now. Perrault, he said, in such a piercing tone that even Sivola jerked his head up. 
but he made an effort to reduce his shrillness and went on speaking very carefully. I have left a letter for the secretary general of the majority to pay 2,500 francs to Jean. You are Jean, are you not? Parole. Price of the tartan in which I sail, is that right? What did you do that for? asked Parole, with an extremely stony face. To get me in trouble? Don't be a fool, Gunner. Nobody remembers your name. It is buried under a stack of blackened paper. I must ask you to go there and tell them that you have seen, with your own eyes, Lieutenant Rael sail away on his mission. The stoniness of Parole persisted, but his eyes were full of fury. Oh, yes, I see myself going there. Twenty-five hundred francs, twenty-five hundred fiddlesticks. His tone changed suddenly. I heard someone say that you were an honest man, and I suppose this is a proof of it. Well, to the devil with your honesty. He glared at the lieutenant, and then thought, He doesn't even pretend to listen to what I say. And another sort of anger, partly contemptuous, and with something of dim sympathy in it, replaced his downright fury. Ha! He said, spat over the side, and walking up to Rial with great deliberation, slapped him on the shoulder. The only effect of this proceeding was to make Rial look up at him without any expression whatever. Parole then picked up the lieutenant's valise and carried it down into the cuddy. As he passed by, Citizen Sivola uttered the word, Citien, but it was only when he came back again that Parole condescended to say, Well, what are you going to do with me? asked Sivola. You would not give me an account of how you came on board this tartan, said Parole, in a tone that sounded almost friendly. Therefore, I need not tell you what I will do with you. A low muttering of thunder followed so close upon his words that it might have come out of Parole's own lips. The rover gazed uneasily at the sky. It was still clear overhead, and at the bottom of that little basin surrounded by rocks there was no view in any other direction. But even as he gazed, there was a sort of flicker in the sunshine, succeeded by a mighty but distant clap of thunder. For the next half hour, Parole and Michel were busy ashore, taking a long line from the tartan to the entrance of the little basin, where they fastened the end of it to a bush. This was for the purpose of hauling the tartan out into the cove. Then they came aboard again. The bit of sky above their heads was still clear, but while walking with the hauling line near the cove, Perrault had got a glimpse of the edge of the cloud. The sun grew scorching all of a sudden, and in the stagnating air a mysterious change seemed to come over the quality and the color of the light. Perrault flung his cap on the deck, bearing his head to the subtle menace of the breathless stillness of the air. Phew, Shashov, he muttered, rolling up the sleeves of his jacket. He wiped his forehead with his mighty forearm, upon which a mermaid with an immensely long fishtail was tattooed. Perceiving the lieutenant, belted sword lying on the deck, he picked it up and without any ceremony threw it down the cabin stairs. As he was passing again near Sivola, the sans culotte raised his voice. I believe you are one of those wretches corrupted by English gold, he cried like 
one inspired his shining eyes his red cheeks testified to the fire of patriotism burning in his breast and he used that conventional phrase of revolutionary time a time when intoxicated with oratory he used to run about dealing death to traitors of both sexes and all ages but his denunciation was received in such profound silence that his own belief in it wavered his words had sunk into an abysmal stillness and the next sound was parole speaking to Raoul. i'm afraid you will get very wet lieutenant before long and then looking at Raoul, he thought with great conviction wet he wouldn't mind getting drowned standing stock still he fretted and fumed inwardly wondering where precisely the english ship was by this time and where the devil that thunderstorm had got to for the sky had become as mute as the oppressed earth Rael asked is it not time to haul out gunner and parole said there is not a breath of wind anywhere for miles he was gratified by the fairly loud mutter rolling apparently along the inland hills over the pool a little ragged cloud torn from the purple robe of the storm floated arrested and thin like a bit of dark gauze end of section fifteen recording by john cairns naperville illinois